Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. About 10 years ago, it seemed to me we could help scientists communicate about their work in a way that was more clear and vivid. And if it worked, it could help science thrive, and it could help our country thrive. And so I helped start the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. It turned out that the tools we were using to get to clear and vivid, like improvisation, were working so well that before long, we were also using them to help doctors communicate with their patients and with one another. There's a growing need for better communication in medicine, sometimes for reasons that I've found surprising. So I thought the best way to explore that in this episode, the last of our three-part series on communication in medicine, was to talk with Laura Lindenfeld, the director of the Alda Center, and Shushmita Patti, the head of our medical division. There's probably no more important moment in our lives for relating and communicating than those few minutes we spend in a doctor's office. Here's my conversation with Laura and Shushmita on that critical moment. This is great because... Uh, today, we have two doctors with us and two completely different kinds of doctors. Shushmita, you're a pediatrician, right? Yes. And Laura, you're a whole other kind of doctor. <laughs> what kind of doctor are you? I'm a doctor of philosophy. Oh, well, we a need PhD. more of that. In, in communication, is it? In communication. So what I really would love to talk to you both about is this whole question of what happens in the doctor's office that... We need to do something about And doctors want to do something about it, too, because the impression I'm getting more and more is that empathy is not just greasing the rails of a transaction. Empathy is medicine in a way. Mm-hmm. What's your experience, Shushmita? Yeah, with yeah, that? What do you do as a doctor to yeah. promote that idea? Yeah. Well, as a pediatrician, obviously, I'm dealing with children of all different ages, babies who can't talk. Hmm. All the way through teenagers who really can talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But won't. I have one. (laughs) So um, you have to, with the parents, obviously engage them. They're the ones that the children are relying on when they're, especially when they're small. Yeah. And the parents need to feel that they can trust you. So how do you bring that about? You have to... Make that connection. And for us as pediatricians, and I'm sure there are pediatricians who will relate to this, talk to the child. Mm. When you walk in the room, 
Say hello to the child, remark on the child, have the conversation with the child at a level, of course, appropriate for their age. That's one way to connect right away. Open-ended questions. Those are the kinds of things we're all trained to do as physicians when we talk with patients. I'm not sure I know what you mean by open-ended questions. Instead of asking, do you like this one or that one? Or are you having a cough? Tell me what you're worried about. Uh, So in other words, a question that just doesn't end in yes or no. Correct. But gives them a chance to express themselves, tell you a story. Exactly. Yeah, that 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 gives them a certain amount of power and standing in the transaction, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. In fact, it's called taking a history. Uh History has story as part of its taking a history. I always experienced, or I think all too often experienced, as how long have you been coughing? (laughs) (laughs) That's when the doctor has twenty other patients waiting in the waiting room, and they're running late. And how much time do you have to spend? It depends. Every um, type of specialty is different. So as pediatricians, we've got 15 minutes Mm. with each patient. Some um, for grown-ups, adults, um, most of the time they have about a half hour for regular checkups, something like that, sometimes 45 minutes if they have new patients, things like that. So the time pressure is real. Do, do you get feedback from families about what they need from you? Yeah. Do you, Do you change how you deal with them in, in that regard? Absolutely. That's the first question I ask, certainly, when I go in the room. What are the questions or concerns you have today? And how how much do they tell you? Do they just tell you symptoms or do you get a little bit of a view of their whole experience in life you lately? You usually get more than just the symptoms because you get the whole story. Okay, well, we were at mm. the playground and there were other kids and this one was sniffling. And then, and then I heard that that one got strep throat and so – and then from school. And so that's what I'm really worried about. And does that help you? Is that more valuable to you than just uh, the symptoms? Absolutely. Hearing the story is what helps me remember mm. the story mm. for sure. We all love stories. That's such an interesting idea that the doctor needs to remember the story too in some kind of context. That that helps the doctor, I guess, think of the patient not just as a collection of symptoms or organs, but as a person in a particular context, and then that puts you better in touch with the person, I would imagine. Absolutely. The um, data show that you can diagnose almost 85% of issues based on getting the whole story. That's really interesting. What do you Tell me more about that. So... There, when we're taught in medical school, how do you take the history? Yeah. There's sort of seven parameters that you're supposed to get to. You might imagine it's just like a reporter. Who, what, when, where, why, how long, what makes it better, what makes it worse. You want to make sure you cover all those bits. And this, there's also other sayings, let the patient tell you what they have. Mm. The mother is always right. <laughs> <laughs> True though, right? Yeah. When I was was researching uh, the book I wrote about communication, I talked to a couple of doctors who told me what I I found to be surprising details about hearing from the patient, which included 
in, in a couple of cases, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with the patient, mm-hmm. and they kept conferring, is it, is it this, is it that? And mm-hmm. finally, one of them said, let's go ask the patient. That's right. And the <laughs> patient said, I think I got malaria. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out they were right. That's... <laughs> so... Absolutely. Getting all the information. So, And the saying is also, you know, in academic centers, the patient is asked to tell their story multiple times. Mm-hmm. First, the medical student goes in, then the resident goes in, then the fellow goes in, and then the attending goes in. And each person gets a little bit more of the story. Which sets the attending up to look pretty good in the yeah. end, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of communication before the attending comes in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my experience in telling them one after another what's wrong with me sometimes ma- makes me a little frustrated. Of course. Yeah. And I think I just told the other guy yep. this. You know, so yep. is there is there a way that can reduce that feeling on my part as a patient by the way the doctor who comes in. knows and lets me know he knows or she knows that somebody has already asked me these questions. Yeah, yeah. well, here's what I usually do. I summarize. Here's what I've heard. Ah. Tell me if I got it right. Yeah, yeah. That's. I remember once I had a shoulder operation, and I had heard so many stories about operating on the wrong part of the body, you know. So when when I took off my shirt... (laughs) The doctor saw I had written in a magic marker, with a magic marker, on my right shoulder, this one. And on the other shoulder, I wrote, not this one. <laughs> and the look on the doctor's face was pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Thank That's God great. it wasn't a colonoscopy. Mm. Right. <laughs> Let's not go there. Yeah. So, I know it's a podcast, but... <laughs> Laura, you and I are both experts in this, but from a completely different point of view. And being doctors, pediatricians? No, we're experts as patients. (laughs) We are. (laughs) And have you had experiences in your life where you wished that the doctor had made better contact with you? I have. um, I've had that experience, I think, too many of us have had, where you go in and the doctor's busy and doesn't really get to look at you and doesn't really listen. And it feels like you're not really in the room together. But I've also had really good experiences. You had you had to take an MRI a couple of days ago. Right? What, how did that go? company I went to was great. They explained it to me. I knew what was going to happen. It was actually kind of peaceful, a little loud. But what happened afterwards at the doctor's office was really remarkable. It was a remarkable experience. I walked in, you know, and they take your history, your story, and you write it out and you go in and the staff looked at me and they said, so so what's happening for you? I have pains, pain in my neck, like literally, not just figuratively. (laughs) So it's not me. No, it's not you. It's not my husband or my kid. (laughs) It's definitely not the dog. So I have pain in my neck. It feels funny to say that. And, uh, the, the atmosphere in there in the pain doctor's office was so welcoming, and I felt very comfortable with them. And I could tell from the intake, the person doing the intake, the staff person, she made great eye contact. She spent time with me. She asked, and I gave her the story. And then by the time the doctor came in, I didn't feel so stressed. So I asked her, how long are, have you been working here? She said, 
two and a half years. And she said, and I love it here. It's a great team. I really enjoy coming Mm. to work. And I thought, I can feel that. So by the time the doctor came in, we only had that 15 minutes that the doctor gets. But the whole atmosphere was set up so that I felt supported. That's something that we found training scientists, thousands of scientists, that not only does the scientist learn to communicate better with the public, but the teamwork that the scientist experiences in the lab improves. Because it's not a lot of people think of communication as just how you best say this message you have. But what we work on, and that seems to really be to the point, is how people let one another into their consciousness and and really have a working relationship that's smoother because of that. And that's so that you were starting to be healed by an empathic approach before you ever met the doctor because the team was functioning better. And I could tell the doctor had set it up that way. How could you tell that? Um, Because he's in charge, and I know that. I know enough about how medical organizations function to know the doctor drives the culture, and Mm. it it just felt like a really safe space. And then the doctor told me a story about how he had his first MRI as a kid because he had headaches, and I thought— wow, that's really cool that he's disclosing that to me, and it made me feel even more comfortable because he's going to put a needle in my neck and inject something in there. So I, <laughs> I don't, don't want to hear any more about this. <laughs> you look a little faint, Alan. <laughs> I, I, can, I can take a needle in the neck. I just can't hear about it. It's really kind of interesting. Doctors communicating with patients doesn't sound like it's a natural outgrowth of scientists communicating with the public. And yet we made that transition, and it turns out that people communicating with anybody under any circumstances need they need to be in touch with the person they're talking to. They need to regard the person they're talking to. It sounds so simple-minded. Sometimes when I'm being interviewed about this, somebody says, well, what's the one thing we should remember about communication? And I, and I think, what, what one thing can I say that sort of captures it? And I say, look at the person you're talking to, <laughs> you know, make eye contact, take them in. Watch them while you talk to them. But that applies not only to scientists, but it applies in a big way to doctors and their patients, right? Absolutely. And and it applies to in terms of teamwork, the teamwork of scientists in their lab and the teamwork of doctors in their in their hospitals mm-hmm. is affected positively by paying attention to one another in a deeper way than we usually do. Mm-hmm. I, I, did, I, I came across some research, and I'd be interested to know, Shushmita, if this jibes with your experience, mm-hmm. that when doctors are regard, regarded by their patients as more empathic, mm-hmm. the doctors and the rest of the team tend to be happier people. They seem to have a more positive experience at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes complete sense. Really, the first job in the doctor-patient relationship is to care. Hmm. And that's why it's called care. That's right. That's like acting. It's called <laughs> act. act. Right. It's doing something. Right. Yeah. So how is that caring not expressed enough and why not? Yeah. I mean, for instance, if this is true, yeah. that caring and showing you care, showing you 
have an empathic stance toward the patient, if that's so important to the health of the patient, how much how much time is spent teaching that in in medical training? How much how many hours might be devoted oh, to this? Oh, a lot. I don't even know. I th- there's certainly requirements. I mean, medical students spend time with standardized patients, actors in fact, right. who are trained to evaluate how they are doing in terms of establishing a rapport, a relationship with the patient, being sensitive to the patient's needs, cultural competency, all of these sorts of things. Unfortunately, what happens is once you enter residency and go on to be a practitioner, the reality of the environment in which you work doesn't support that, doesn't support the time that's needed to make that connection. You're in an environment where you have 15 minutes. And if you have a patient who comes and says, I'm really worried about my child's behavior in school. That's going to take more than 15 minutes to mm-hmm. unpack. Yeah. And yet that might be the, a moment where you have a breakthrough with the patient. Right. I remember a workshop I saw that we that we gave at the Center for Communicating Science a few years ago that was very interesting because we use improvisation a lot and in this particular exercise, two medical students were in, were involved. One was playing the part of the doctor. The other was playing the part of a patient. Mm-hmm. And the one playing the part of the patient was essentially doing what you do when you have a standardized patient mm-hmm. played by an actor. Um, but in this case, the, because the uh, it was improvised, the person playing the patient didn't just rattle off symptoms, but instead was really, really playing a, a three-dimensional patient. So that what the what the person playing the doctor got from the patient was not just "I have a pain here and a pain there," but why did you just tell me that? Am I in trouble? Mm-hmm. Am I going to die? Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if you get that from. Uh, the other kind of experience where you, where you don't use this improv technique, and it it gave it gave them both an interesting experience, which was this is what it's like to be a doctor in this situation, and this is what it's like to be a patient. Mm-hmm. To go through the experience of being a patient, mm-hmm. I think, is probably really valuable for a doctor. I, growing up, I, I've heard dozens of stories about how doctors make the worst patients. That's 100% true. <laughs> <laughs> you played one of those on TV, too. <laughs> yeah, right. On the big C, I remember yeah. that role. On MASH, I had, they had to, we had to tell 250 stories. So I had one disease after another after a while. <laughs> I had rare, I went blind on one show. <laughs> <laughs> so I vicariously saw what it was like to be a patient while trying to be a doctor or play a doctor. But the idea that you can actually walk in somebody else's shoes mm-hmm. through through um, vicarious experiences mm-hmm. like this play mm-hmm. is, is it seems to me to be a valuable thing. You, you, Laura, you, you as as the director of the Center for Communicating Science, it seems to me you've had an immersion process in the value of 
what improv does for people. What have you seen? How have you seen people changed by that? Or not? Yeah, I mean, no, I, I, I think I, I, it this... really changes people. I mean, it surprises me every time I do it because it's so powerful. And you may not expect it to be so powerful because it seems like this this game and this play, but it's... Yeah, very often there's yeah. laughter in the room, not because anything funny is said, but because spontaneity makes you giggle. Yeah, yeah. And, and therefore, sometimes people disregard it and devalue it because they think, well, if we're laughing at it, it can't have a serious effect on us. And yet you see that happen. You see them change. I think it's about being present. The more I do this, it's about being present and willing to be a little vulnerable in the room mm. and to open up. And it's we get that trained out of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine that happens with doctors when you have how many patients a day, 15 minutes each and all this paperwork. You got to eat lunch sometime and then you probably have your own kids and your laundry list and this you have to do and get to the gym and God knows what else. But being able to focus and be present and open up that little bit of vulnerability in yourself that you need to show your own humanity, we get trained, we get that trained out of us. And it must be hard to do 20 times a day with 20 different patients. As Shushmita explored the problems of communication in medicine, she began to focus not just on how patients are affected, but doctors too. The extent of this was a surprise to me, and it might be to you too, when we come back. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Laura Lindenfeld and Shushmita Patti. We've been talking on these shows about uh, doctor-patient relationship. Yeah. But you're focusing on something that I really wasn't aware was a really serious problem, mm-hmm. which is doctor burnout, physician yeah. burnout. Yeah. It's a, it must be a harrowing experience. I've always felt that the responsibility that doctors take over the lives of other people just must be so heavy a burden that I don't know how they can take it. The most eloquent way that I've heard it put is burnout is essentially an erosion of the soul. Mm. So, you know, doctors, nurses, many healthcare professionals went into the profession because they want to help people. That medical school essay that everyone had to write talks about helping people. And when you feel like you're not helping people, you've lost the meaning in your work, you feel like you're not doing the right, able to do the right thing for your patient, that's burnout. Mm. I've read uh, with regard to burnout Mm. that doctors who are experiencing Mm. it, 
begin to feel that they're not accomplishing anything That's in life, right. that they get depressed. Yes. Lose lose a sense of purpose. Yes. What the number of doctors who would not recommend mm-hmm. medicine to their children mm-hmm. is shockingly high. What what is it roughly? 59%. 59%. Of, yeah. Oh my god. It's terrible. It's a crisis for the profession, right? Yeah. For the future where, of the workforce. Where are new doctors going to come from? That's right. Yeah. 59 to 70% if you look at the literature and the studies, depending on how the question is asked and what group and all of those kinds of things. So what do you do about that? So, I mean, what we're offering, and this was really the inspiration for the new types of curricula that they're, that we're offering now um, through the Alda Center are around how do we rejuvenate that passion that drove you into going into healthcare, that passion to help people by connecting with your team, mm-hmm. building those team connections, because by connecting with your team, you're all going to feel better about what you're doing. And you're all in it together. You're, you're in it together, and you're much more likely to do the best thing for the patient. It's so heartening as a patient, as I said, I do feel that we're experts in in medical care as as patients. Sure. And uh, we're, we're experts in the experience of being a patient. We don't know that much about the medicine part, although more and more, and I suppose there's more and more misinformation, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things doctors have to be mm-hmm. careful about in how they relate to their patients as well, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But we... We we need to know that we're going into a, a an experience where there's caring that's going to take place, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we need to know it's not at the expense of the doctor's well-being because mm-hmm. eventually that's going to be at our expense. Mm-hmm. It strikes me your question about the value of improv. If we think about a doctor who's burnt out and lost that piece of humanity and maybe feels so raw that they're afraid to show any vulnerability mm-hmm. or they'll collapse. Mm-hmm. How improv can reinvigorate you? What do you think about improv for this? Yeah, I think it really works, having done it now a lot of times. Does it help you? It absolutely helps me. It absolutely helps me. Can you remember the when you were first facing doing your first session that involved improv exercise, did you say to yourself, what the hell is this? (laughs) No, well, look, I'm a pediatrician. I like to play. Uh, <laughs> That's why I like you yeah. so much. <laughs> so it was great. It was so um it was really transformative. And that's that's why we found it to be so valuable yeah. not to lecture people about empathy but to put them through experiences that generate empathy. Yeah. So, can you think of it, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you think of some way in which, because, you know, improv has been my life, so I'm I'm really really interested in how people have been transformed by it. Everybody I know who who was a fellow actor studying improv around the time that I first got into it, everybody was transformed, Mm -hmm. not just as as an actor, Mm -hmm. but as a person. Mm Mm-hmm. And can you remember any any moment that that you grew from improv? Well, I can tell you, I think I got rejuvenated. Mm. 
I think um, I'm connecting much more personally with my patients than I was. I've been practicing for more than 20 years now. So, and I think I did my first improv session maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago. So for me, it was really a very much a rejuvenating experience. You know what improv does too? I'm thinking as you're talking, it makes you want to connect because it makes you curious. And it's fun to connect. It is. It, is. it feels good. It's so weird, isn't it, that we're social animals and yet we look for ways to get away from one another very much. <laughs> Except at times when we make it a formality. We're going to have a party and we're all going to get together. But all during the day, for seven, for seven days a week or just five days a week, we're forced to be together. We have to find some way to have teamwork. And that seems like a chore. Whereas, when we, as you say, when we do improv, we really love being together. You can't do it without taking in the other person and, in a way, dancing with the other person. Yeah, it's like it gives you permission to really explore what's going on and bring your natural curiosity to the relationship. One of the things that, that improv helps you do is accept the unexpected, accept the innovative, mm -hmm. whether it's coming up out of the back of your own head mm -hmm. or coming up from a, uh, a teammate. Mm -hmm. Wherever it's coming from, you say, well, let's try that. Let's see what that's like. That's the improv notion of yes and. Right. Right? In an improv, in a, in a, in a scene where you're acting out a scene, if one of them says, look at all that water down there, and the other one says, that's not water, that's the stage, then that's the end of the scene. Right. Whereas if he uses yes and and says, yes, look at that water, and then why don't we jump into it and chase that turtle and see how far we can get. <laughs> right? That That's that's how teamwork happens, I think, by yeah. yes anding yeah. each yes. other. Yes. How far do you take improv into the actual experience mm -hmm. of making a team work better mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Yeah. So I'll tell you our experience at Stony Brook. We ran for about a year, one and a half hour workshops with healthcare professionals uh, who work with children. So it included doctors, nurses, trainees, respiratory therapists, anyone who touched children in the hospital. And we did these improv exercises that were designed to rejuvenate their passion for entering healthcare and build connection with each other as the healthcare team. Now, the folks in the room weren't necessarily uh, assigned to work with each other. They were people who all worked with children, but they didn't necessarily work together every day. So... What we did with, through the improvisational in exercises, they were really working on, again, building that connection and thinking about how to communicate more clearly. And we found that in the wake of running those exercises, so we had about 150 people who went through that. And the Children's Hospital certainly has at least, um, you know, tenfold number of employees. So we didn't touch everyone. We touched a small group group, the nursing leadership came to us afterward and let us know that, in fact, the nurses 
were now, when they were making perhaps comments that came off as abrupt with each other or disrespectful, things like that, they were signaling to each other a forgiveness <laughs> for that wow. by we doing have, a ta-da. We have this exercise called clown bow yeah. where you learn to get over a mistake really fast and yeah. move on and support your your partner. Yeah. And we say, ta-da, when you make a mistake, and we force you to make a mistake. Ta-da! Right? right? Shush me to yeah. ta-da! Ta-da! And what yeah. we heard is the nurses are ta-daing in the halls. Yeah. Stone yeah, that's medicine. one of my favorite exercises. I'd, I, I've told you that I often go through a day making small mistakes, not one where I almost kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Little social mistakes. I right. should have said this. Yeah. I was abrupt about that. or something. Right. And I'll say to myself, ta-da! You know, ta-da, you know, and it, and it just goes away. And I, and I don't burden myself. Right. It's, very, it's interesting. The, your guilt about little things can add up. It does. To a it real does. burden. And I can see how in a medical situation that burden can lead to burnout. Yeah. And did you find that all of this improv application to the medical experience came from how you worked with scientists earlier? Yeah. You know, these little things, they add up. First, it's one thing. You beat yourself up. You get angry at your colleague. You don't say it, and it builds up. And what happens is distrust, resentment, confusion. People get burnt out. They pull back. And what improv does is it brings you back together and helps you say ta-da as a group and see each other's humanity. One of the areas I've I feel like that started to emerge as we move forward with this conception of teams is the relationship of biomedical researchers to physicians. Mm -hmm. And how do you bring the science that you're doing, if you're at the bench, how do you bring that to physicians Mm -hmm. who are also trained as scientists Mm -hmm. so that they're willing and accepting of the evidence basis that you're created creating? And I was thinking as you were talking before, Shashmita, about a... um, A number of biomedical researchers I've experienced who have had challenges having doctors listen to them, Mm -hmm. especially around cancer treatment. Well, I'm not going to stop doing it that way because that's the way we've always done it. Mm -hmm. Even though a more personalized approach might make the patient more comfortable and Mm -hmm. even healthier. Mm -hmm. That We've worked with uh, efforts that really interested me to incorporate the experience and the, uh, the knowledge of the researchers with the the physicians who are delivering medicine and the community that that they're working with who who have medical needs. And the the gap between those three groups sometimes is serious and something that's not not in everybody's interest. It's creating a bigger sense of who the team is. Yeah, oh, good. Right? And, And putting everybody together on your team. I was thinking about your interview with uh, Father Boyle. Yeah. And how he talked about it's, it's you, you've got to open up this relationship where you're a person who someone else can come to. I'm phrasing that poorly. But if you think of everybody involved mm-hmm. in this system as mm-hmm. part of the team together, mm-hmm. that proximity breeds trust. He, he said an interesting thing about when somebody comes in for the first time to one of his uh, organizations, they, it's very much like what you said, Shushmita, before about uh, what what both of you said, you too, Laura, about 
the team welcomes you with an uh, an aura mm-hmm. of care. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he talked about the first minute, first second you come in the door, you're you, you're in touch with someone who is using tenderness. I mm-hmm. love that word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's another word for care, I mm-hmm. think. Another word for connection, for mm-hmm. w- wanting the best for the person mm-hmm. that you're talking to and letting them know that and not swamping them with your officiality. Right. And look at that works in Boyle's work in getting gang members free of their their gangs and having constructive lives. It works in medicine. It works it works in pretty much every every enterprise in life. Mm-hmm. And to spend conscious effort in helping that come about and not just saying we ought to have it, it seems to me to be the way to approach it. So we've come to the end of our talk, and we always ask seven quick questions, hoping to get seven quick answers. You go first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So there are two of you, so I'm going to really make this quick. Okay. Shushmita, what do you wish you really understood? Chinese. Chinese. (laughs) Best answer I had yet. What do you wish other people understood about you? Hmm. I like to play. Ah, good. And these are all vaguely related to communication. This is one directly related. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? (laughs) Oh, boy. Hmm. Are you a nurse? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's great. How many times a week do you get asked that? (laughs) Another another communication question that's direct. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Make a joke. Oh. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Oh. Child abusers. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> Depends on how much empathy I have for the other person. <laughs> Good enough. Okay, final question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Oh, betrayal of my trust. Okay. I, Laura's shaking her head. You, you're going to go through these questions quicker. If, okay. Especially if anybody ever asked you if you were a nurse. <laughs> Okay, Laura, first question. What do you wish you really understood? I really wish I understood how other people actually feel. Oh. Yeah. What do you wish other people understood about you? How much I really care. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Okay, here's my answer. In 1999, some guy on a date asked me if I wanted to start working on the millennial baby. (laughs) (laughs) On a date? On a date? Yeah, that was the last date. Well, that's the best answer I heard to that question. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? How do you stop a compulsive talker? I think I walk I'm away. I'm the compulsive talker. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> so what, do you have a technique? I walk away. Oh, just try okay. to get out of it. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Yeah. You going to say? No, <laughs> not on <laughs> okay. air. It's it's okay. It I, got it. Really I got it. I got it. I got it. 
How do you like to deliver bad news, in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? I don't like to deliver bad news, <laughs> but if I have to, I'd rather do it face-to-face. Okay. Last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Betrayal. Yeah, you both are aligned on that. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in and talking. This has been really fun. I love our teamwork together. Me too. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. And speaking of the Center for Communicating Science, I can't thank Dr. Laura Lindenfeld and Dr. Shushmita Pati enough for all they do and for their tireless efforts in helping the Center grow and mature. Laura's leadership as the director and Shushmita's contributions to our medical program are making my dream for better communication a reality. And in big ways, too. The Alda Center now conducts over 100 workshops around the world each year. And we've trained more than 12,000 scientists and physicians. To find out more about what we do and to take part in a workshop, please visit aldacenter.org. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with W. Kamau Bell. His show on CNN is called United Shades of America, and he describes it as a conversation with all the different parts of America. So that's an interesting idea. How do you have a conversation with different parts of a nation as big as ours? He does it in part by letting the people he meets tell their stories. And he says it's all about relating. He's also a stand-up comic, and he uses that skill not only to stay related, 
but to keep it fun as well. I think sometimes people think you're just there to shoot the show and you don't really care about them as a person. And for me, it's like, no, no, we're here because we care about you as a person. And I want you to feel like the show is a fun thing to do. And so it's my job to keep it fun. W. Kamau Bell, exploring what it is to be an American, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.